Every new song that you hear on the radio is written with a computer. Computer musicians mostly use synthesizers and samples to compose those songs. A sample is a snippet of recorded sound, sometimes taken from a song or a movie or some other source. The more samples a musician has access to, the better. Sample Focus is a platform where musicians upload and download samples to build songs with. Daniel Trosley is the engineer who is building Sample Focus, and he joins the show today to discuss how people use samples to write music and how he built Sample Focus. I met Daniel at the Launch Scale event, which is a conference about building internet businesses. And when I was having lunch with Daniel, he told me about working on his personal project full time and some of the different business models he was exploring. So I wanted to have him on the show, and this is a great episode for anyone who is thinking about turning a side project into a business. Also, I want to mention that if you're in the Bay Area on January 11th, you should come check out the Software Engineering Daily Meetup. There will be some awesome speakers. There will be food, a positive atmosphere. You can find more information on softwareengineeringdaily.com or at the Software Engineering Daily Meetup page. Daniel Trosley is the developer of Sample Focus, a platform for finding audio samples. Daniel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. It's awesome to be here. In the last few decades, we have gotten to a point where almost all of the music that we hear on the radio or on Spotify is computer-generated. And computer-generated music is mostly made with a combination of synthesizers and samples. Explain what a sample is. A sample is basically a very short audio uh, file. And usually, uh, I think there, you could refer to samples as either one shots, meaning that they're meant to be used one or loops, meaning that you can play the same thing over and over again, and it sounds uh, musically correct, right? So it's, it's set in bars. And, and with samples, uh, I think of them as building blocks, right? Because uh, just like a paint is a building block to uh, a painter, samples can be used as building blocks for a musician or for any kind of creator that uses sound. Where do musicians typically find the samples that they use to create their songs? Well, I feel like, you know, I, I wasn't around in the 70s, but when, from what I've seen in these documentaries, like hip hop is one of the first uh, genres that really explored sampling. And these, uh, these musicians, they would go crate digging and go to vinyl shops and find small um, sections of the song they really liked. And they load them on into samplers or drum machines and hit them. And so there's a really uh, large culture behind sampling. And some of your favorite songs, I guarantee, have samples from songs you've never heard of that are, that are quite old. I've seen these documentaries of people like DJ Shadow and other people who make a lot of sample-based music where they just dig through crates, they dig through this vinyl stuff, and I look at that and it just looks so unappealing, like yeah. just not not exciting at all. It's like this big analog process, and it seems like the type of thing that computers can really help with, which is why it was so cool to find out about Sample Focus, which you built. How how does the sampling community online work? Well, uh, there are already a few different sites uh, uh, that were dedicated to samples before Sample Focus uh, came online, and it, you know, in today's uh, murky copyright world, it's it's interesting because some 
artists consider don't consider ripping off a sample as something that's wrong because they see music as inherently just a, a, a giant remix of everything else. Um, but generally, uh, there's people that upload samples uh, and they try to contribute to a community because they themselves feel like they should give back. And then there's other people that um, that just that just uh, use samples without really regards to copyright because they they don't believe in it or and so forth. So, uh, but it's it's a murk area. How how does the sampling community compare to the open source community where people are just pulling code and they're sharing code and they're building on top of each other's work and nobody's really laying claim to anything specifically? Well, I think the open source world is actually could be a model for the sampling world because I don't even though in some aspects maybe the sampling world is older than the open source world it, it's they don't have the same let's say code of conduct and <clears throat> I, I believe that uh, actually music tech companies are pulling a lot of ideas from the open source world so case in point uh, Blend who I know you did a, a podcast with before and Splice they, they both are taking ideas from GitHub and the, the, that sort of community and appliance and music. So with sampling, I think there's a lot of opportunity there too because you could with you know, modern technology do some cool attribution to the sense that you could, if you produce a sound, you could later, just like YouTube detects copyright infringement, maybe detect where your sound is used later on the road. Sort of like you see the, the network tab in, on GitHub. Your site... Sample Focus allows users to download and upload audio samples. Explain how this is used by musicians. Right. So the idea here is that previously, if you worked with samples a lot, you would have your own organizational system on your hard drive um, because that's all you had were files and the file names. And, and generally, um, you would end up with a nested some nested upon nested folders of different sound packs, and all you'd had to go through was 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 their file names, which really didn't have a lot of information about the sound because there's just so much metadata you could attribute to a sound, like the emotional qualities, the BPM, the the key, and 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 so forth. So the idea here is basically I wanted an organized sound library for myself because I had this problem of having gigs of samples and with no way to find what I was looking for. I've had that same problem. And so that, that sample focus is here to solve that by organizing it. And so by, by organizing it, the idea is that the musician will find what they're looking for quicker and be able to create better. Hmm. When I go to samplefocus.com, there are all these components around the page that represent different audio files that I can hover over and play a sound so it's like all these samples are just represented all along the page. It's like you're scrolling through um, a bunch of listings on Airbnb or something, and you just hover over them, and you hear the sample of the sound. So as a musician, this is really useful because this is exactly what I do in the digital audio workstation when I'm looking through my library of sounds, and I'm clicking on stuff, and I'm thinking, okay, does this resonate with the feeling I'm trying to create in this song? How do the musicians that you've talked to about Sample Focus, how do they use it to write music? What is it, where does it fit into their workflow? That's a great question. I, and it's hard to answer because 
every musician, there's not one workflow and some people like to uh, start with a particular instrument. Like I used to always start with the drums or generally I would be inspired by uh, another track I was listening to and want to capture that feeling that I felt. So um, one thing I, I, I want, I really am excited for about Sample Focus is this default tag system that has certain categories associated with it. So for instance, like emotional tags, those all are kind of grouped together and they just describe an emotion. And then there's um, timbre tags, which describe kind of like the quality, the the character of the sound. So you could say a sound is bright. And by decomposing um, sound into these these default descriptors that hopefully more people can share and kind of hover around, then we can create a, a language uh, where I can communicate to to other to other people, but also to software and tell tell the software or another person exactly what I'm thinking of. Hmm. Is that labeling done by humans or is it an automated thing? Right now, it's done by humans, but I'm actively exploring uh, machine learning technologies to to get that done and we actually do have some some cool machine learning on sample focus already um one of the features i'm i'm most proud of is the complementary sounds feature where we can uh, recommend you sounds that will sound good together and it'll plays on sync on the page so it basically comes up with some inspiration for you uh and you can preview that right there and there and it plays in sync and it's in the same key and just lets you hit the ground running. Is that a recommendation system built with the tags of the of the sounds, or or do you have machine learning systems that can look at a set of tagged uh, things that are all, like samples that are all in like they're all playing in A or they're all in the key the key of C, and you can train that algorithm to detect. Uh, other sounds that are in the key of of C, like do, uh, I'm 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 kind of trying to draw, to draw two distinctions of what this could potentially be. You could be recommending people sounds based uh, off of the tags that already exist, or you could be using the pre-existing tag data to tag new data. Exactly. So um, I think you touched upon the differences between like the two fields of machine learning, right? It was like supervised learning and unsupervised learning. And so the set, so I would say sample focus is right now only supervised because it does do the recommendations based on the tags and also the other uh, some of the other metadata like uh, tempo and the key. Uh, and so although the key and the um, and the tempo are algorithmically uh, calculated, so so in that sense it's it, it's all this information that's already known about the sound. Uh, but I've seen some incredibly cool experiments. Uh, that are published online by Google with, with these new technologies to do unsupervised learning where I'm just giving it the sound and it is able to like, I think it uh, makes it to a spectrogram, which is another visualization of a, a sound, which is based on um, the frequency over, over a time domain. And then it learns from that. So so Google has some technology that can label, so if I, if I give, okay, let me ask you this. If I give you a sample right now, can you detect what key that sample is in in, in an easy fashion? Yeah, I do that already. Okay. And, and, and that's, that's kind of t- uh, key detection has been around for a while. Uh, and you can do that. Uh, it's accurate. A lot of, sometimes. I mean, with <laughs> sound. <laughs> so the accuracy isn't great. It depends on the duration of the sound. 
and also what's going on because there's some like crazy pads or uh, instruments that are just like detuned and they're not, they don't follow like the standard one note, one pitch. And then there's more clear sounds. So, uh, so the technology is still not super accurate. I'd say maybe 70% off the top of my head. Um, but it's better than nothing. And, uh, but, but yeah, so as far as the technology that I've seen from Google and from other bigger companies, they're doing some cool stuff where I don't, they don't feed it any tags or any names or anything about the sound but other than the raw file. And it can group them together and classify them a little bit better than... So, so I think there's some really cool stuff coming up with that because um, you could do some assisted compositional technologies. So like you're composing right now and then on the fly, I'm going to be feeding you recommendations. I mean, this is kind of stuff that Brian Eno has been talking about for a while. Um, I think it's, um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, I did a show recently with a guy who developed something called BachBot, which is he fed this, this uh, a, he trained a machine learning thing to compose music similar to Bach. And you just see these examples of generative music. But there's the, there's the interesting question of why... What is it about the hooks that that humans can create that uh, is not cannot be captured by some generative algorithm uh, today? It, 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 like that would be such a valuable piece of technology if you could just if you could just produce uh, a, a hook from an, a, in an automated fashion. Uh, why do you think we're not there yet? Uh, that's a good question. I think that. Uh... If you feed a computer enough examples of hooks, it could probably generate a hook based on those. But it wouldn't. But I don't think machines can be creative in the way that you mean uh, yet. And I don't know if that will happen. I mean, but um, but I think the point in providing these tools is not to, let's say, generate a whole track uh, for a machine like that. The, the like the the other guest you interviewed. I'd say that it's more in providing inspiration and the right tools for the, so the artist, when he's in that flow moment, that flows, uh, you know, where, so that he can, or he or she can really continue going super fast and not having to stop and think about the technicalities or the rules about if what they're doing is right or not. And they can just continue creating in a, in a really quick way. And this gets at one of the difficulties of developing web-based tools for musicians is because the musician wants to do everything in the digital audio workstation because any disruption in the flow state reduces the ability to, to work effectively. And so there's the challenge of pulling in samples from a web-based interface, and you have to download it, and you have to bring it into your, to your digital audio workstation. And this is why a lot of the prevalent solutions are things like buying CDs of samples and so that it's really easy to load them into your digital audio workstation. I, yeah, I think exactly. I, I think I remember talking to you and you you and I have both done this in the in the distant past where we literally paid like $20 for a CD of MP3s and just like loaded it into the digital audio workstation. And there are, there are now companies that do this as a service like Splice. Um, what is the typical pattern for how people get samples from Sample Focus into their digital audio workstation? Well, uh, what, how I designed it and, I, and how most people, I, I believe, use it is that they will keep sample focus open while they're actually creating so that 
because the the if if they're just downloading samples and then keeping them on their hard drive, they've basically replicated the problem they were trying to solve before, which is if you have all these samples on your hard drive, they're just going to get lost in the noise that is your 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 organizational structure that you have. But if you download them as you go and just bring them right from your your download folder or from your download tab right into the program as you're creating, you don't have to think about where to store it anymore or what uh, what what kind of meta information it has because it's hard. There isn't, uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's a standard way to keep music meta information. I mean, like for MP3s have ID3 tags, but that's for when you want to query something about a, a recorded song. But if you want the kind of meta information that is a, that musicians care about with a sample, like the emotional qualities or the tamper characteristics or all the other things that you need to compose, there isn't uh, a file format or some kind of uh, meta field in the WAV files. So, so, so the idea here is they're just taking it right from sample focus, which has all this, the, the attributes that they might need to, to make, to find what they're looking for quickly. And bring, they bring it right into their DAW right away. And then they have it and they can mess around with it there. What is sample focus built with? Ruby on Rails and uh, just some custom JavaScript. Can you talk about how you got it to be very responsive? Because I, I noticed that on a given screen, there's all of these audio files that have to load. I can hover over them and they play instantly. Do you have to prefetch those audio files, or are there any interesting, um, you know, speed up techniques you you took? Sure. Yeah, actually, I did a lot of optimization on on the app. Uh, the audio files are just they're hosted on S3 and there's a CloudFront CDN um, in front of that, so uh, they're cached in like I don't know how, however many uh, serv- servers Amazon has, and uh, I do have. When you when you play them back and you when you hover on them, it's actually playing back a really low bitrate MP3. So the file size is actually quite low. And then when you download it, it's the full WAV uh, WAV file that is you know uncompressed and a lot a lot larger than the the uh, the really compressed MP3. So so that's why it's it it seems very responsive. And then um, I'm a big fan of TurboLinks, which is why the page speeds are, are pretty good and. Uh, the rest is just uh, some 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 custom JavaScript I wrote that does like the things like the infinite load and and making sure that the the the, the event listeners like trigger pretty quick when you hover. TurboLinks is this great piece of uh, software that is developed by Basecamp, the same people that made uh, made Ruby on Rails, and it's kind of like an alternative to the. The, the JavaScript front-end frameworks that you know everyone's raving about. So it's an alternative to Ember, it's an alternative to React, it's an alternative to uh, Angular. And basically what it does is it uh, modifies the, the DOM in place with, uh, with, some, with, with the response it gets from an Ajax call. So it, doesn't, it, 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 it sits between a full-page reload, right, which is the traditional... Uh, way web apps used to work, and and basically it intercepts whenever you're actually trying to request a page, and then instead just issues it in, an AJAX call, and then replaces it, uh, kind of doing like a virtual DOM diffing, and it and it's great because it's kind of a plug and play solution. You don't have to create an API for your Rails, and then you don't have to write a models or 
or any other of, of the configuration you have to set up to, to make Angular, Ember, or any of those other front-end frameworks work. How has the adoption of... Uh, actually, I need to do a show on this because I've heard people talking about TurboLinks. Why or how is the adoption comparing to React and how do people say it compares to React? Because React is the, the, the framework I've done the most shows on. It's obviously uh-huh. got so much momentum behind it. Uh, how does the, the conversation differ uh, between React and TurboLinks? Well, the TurboLinks, I think, accomplishes most of what people need when uh, they're talking about having a JavaScript, like a, a kind of that, that single-page feel. But there are some th- things it can't do. Like, for instance, if you wanted to uh, keep an audio player play between page loads, kind of like how you go, if you go on SoundCloud and you go to another page of song still playing, that can't be accomplished with TurboLinks because it is still uh, changing too much of the DOM for it to keep that, that audio player there. Um, but the thing with the adoption of TurboLinks is that because it's made by, um, by Basecamp and Basecamp makes Rails, it's built, it comes with every like fresh install of Rails if you just do a default install. So most people use it uh, if they use Rails or they are, are familiar with it. Getting back to a discussion of sample focus, what are the hosting fees that you pay for? Because you're using a bunch of, I mean, it sounds like you're using some Amazon services. You've got a lot of MP3 files that you're hosting. What does that add up to? Uh, less than $100 for everything. I mean, maybe less than 80 I think. And that, that includes um, Heroku, which is the bulk of my, uh, my services. And then I use some ADLBS services like, uh, like S3 and CloudFront and... Um, so it's it's not too bad, and I I, I think uh, well hopefully it'll you know sample folks continue to grow. It's it's been getting uh, it's been it's been going well. Uh, you know I think with with any web service it's it's a challenging between just growing the numbers and also making sure that your product is good and you're not like a, uh, filling a leaky bucket. I guess. What do you mean by that? I mean that people are coming back to use your app. So instead of just you know, having a lot of traffic and then, you know, it might look good in your Google Analytics. You might see like, okay, well, traffic's increasing. Well, that just might mean that more and more people are visiting your app. That might not mean that they're coming back, which is really the only thing that matters if you're building a new web service. Okay. So this gets to the question of churn Uh and you and I met at a launch scale event is that what it was called launch scale i think so this this is this is a series of presentations about how companies are built uh it's hosted by jason calacanis who hosts the this week in startups podcast i like that podcast a lot and so you and i met each other we had lunch together you told me about building a business around sample focus and this show typically focuses on the engineering more than the business but i do like to branch into business discussions sometimes samples as a service is clearly something that people need what has been your experience building a business around it well you know i'm still quite in the early stages of figuring that out and um what's been helping me is looking at other uh businesses or business models that use are very similar so um Two businesses I really like that are, are, are similar in some respects to Sample Focus are um, Noun Project and Icon Finder. And they, 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 they are very similar in the sense that 
they provide a creative asset to people that need it when, when they're building something. And they, they provide icons. Um, and so I've been looking at how they grew over the years. I mean, they're quite, quite older than the Ensemble Focus. And then Splice Sounds is another one that I, I'm always keeping an eye on because they are doing something that's quite cool. And uh, they have a whole other platform that's kind of like GitHub. And I think blend, like the Blend is very similar, although I don't think they have a, a sample, sample business. So I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm just trying to take lessons from some, some businesses that have had success with a similar model from before me and, um, and learning as I go. There is GitHub. There's GitLab. There's Bitbucket. There are a variety of tools that are used to manage our source code repositories. For some reason, I think that there is an analogy to be drawn here between source code hosting and sample hosting. I mean, I guess the, I guess the analogy would be on GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever. You could be pulling other people's code into your repository. On Sample Focus, you're pulling samples, or uh, you know, I guess the analogy of Blend. Blend, you're pulling entire projects into your workspace as a musician. What what are the differences between that you're trying to draw between? Because and, and so I've used I've used Blend. I've looked at Splice. Um, these seem like tools for more like in your. It's like your uh, your tool for managing your version control for entire entire songs. So so that's kind of a different a different challenge than just focusing on the samples. The sample Absolutely, focus, I yeah. guess. So maybe you could talk more about like what is the differentiation that you're trying to draw there? Sure. Well, there's a, f- a few things. And uh, one thing I'd like to see sample focus used for, and actually people have approached me about this, is to use it uh, for non-musical purposes because sound is, you know, is incredibly versatile. And uh, a huge uh, market I'd like to see sample focus used for is uh, the film, like creating video and, uh, and film. And so that's, that's something that um, Blend and Splice aren't really meant for because they're geared especially to, uh, just towards musicians, especially because of their technology that's built around these DAW integrations, right? And so um, what, and what, where, what I'm interested in is, is creating a language around sound that we can all use. And, and by creating a language that we can all use, it'll be easier to, to use it in any given setting, not necessarily just in Ableton or in Logic or whatever. When you get into the discussion of video, it reminds me of these businesses like Video Blocks and Audio Blocks. Right. And these are businesses where I think you pay a subscription fee and you get unlimited access to this repository of samples. What would be, I guess the difference there is like it's more of like this monolithic company that's just uploading all these samples and then you get access to them. It sounds like the, the the vision with sample focus is more of a crowdsourcing community for different samples. Exactly. Yeah, you've got that right. So, uh, in some ways, it's taking a lot of cues from YouTube and um, some of these other like user generated content sites, and that comes with its own challenges. But it allows us to have a lot of diversity in our sounds. What did the competitors the the so the biggest competitor in the space I think is Splice. And this is this music uh, version control software. What is the Splice Sounds model for selling samples to people? Well, 
they come they partner with uh big publishing houses usually like i think their biggest partner is uh, loop masters which is like a giant company that you know pumps out um sample pack after sample pack and so in some ways their model is very much like netflix because like netflix partnerships with big movie studios and allows uh consumers to to get their those movies on demand and then cuts in the movie studios in some way that's that's sort of what splice is doing and they're they're catering to to the kind of people that that want those sample packs in a cheaper way essentially is there legal risk to hosting a site for samples uh yeah absolutely but i think it's the same legal risk that's been explored by pretty much every user generated content website so um you know youtube i think was is one of the best studied ones and they kind of broke ground on on the legal kind of uh, aspects of 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 user generated content and you know there's this 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 law called uh, digital millennium copyright act in the united states and it basically says that these portals aren't liable uh as long as they're you know doing what they're doing responsibly and so i'm not encouraging a piracy and i and i don't want sample folks to just become like the, the pirate bay of samples <laughs> But, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have the YouTube size and, and, and we're, we're, we're learning as we go. And if we, t- if we receive a takedown request, um, that's, you know, that's authorized by the, the, the DMCA law, we'll, we'll certainly comply with it. And, but it's a law that's, that's, that's been great because it's allowed really like innovative surf- uh, services to, to come through. Like Giphy um, would not be possible without user-generated content. I mean, they, they basically s- scrape, at least I don't think they do this anymore, but when they started, they just scraped Tumblr and other content sites t- and, then, and then made those GIFs available. But who, they had no idea if those GIFs were you know, infringing on some copyright. Yeah, oh, Giphy, what a cool business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you have to do any spam prevention techniques? Do you have any users that are doing some automated uploading and stuff to store things uh not yet uh we haven't had any problems with that um we do at this point i mean uh all samples are i i i personally look at them before they're published and uh it's it's very it's a very manual process to and i do it mostly to ensure quality because some people have uploaded stuff that just it's just bad <laughs> and 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 to keep uh, to have a, a library that's valuable, I want it to be a of uh, high quality and be organized. And so those two things have to to fit. And right now it is it is a little a little manual can be a little uh, intensive as far as labor is concerned. But I've been slowly been able to uh, automate more and more of that, and I think it's going to get better. You may want to look. I don't have you looked at the scale API? Just did a show on it. It's basically like Mechanical Turk with a better interface and with programming APIs. So you can, okay. so you, so I could see like making an API call for each of your new samples and requesting that a Turk look at it and label it, something like that. But, um, cool. I'll take a look at it. Yeah. Yeah. It might be worth looking at. Um, like I look at my sample library and I've got like a bajillion samples and there are so many that would not be useful or appropriate uh, to, to upload to sample focus. And I think what you are doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 
you have basically a policy where you can download up to X samples, and then in order to do more, in order to upload more, in order to download more samples, you have to upload some amount of samples. So you get like credits by uploading. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's what we have so far to encourage the the users to contribute. It's an interesting model. Is it working? Yeah, actually. I mean, uh, it can definitely be tweaked, and the numbers that I'm using uh, are not fixed. But I'd like to see um, to see it grow organically. And people have been uploading. There's, I think, there's a few other things I can do to to get more people to upload and to increase engagement. But it's an ongoing experiment, and but I'm happy to say, like, you can go on and you'll see that, uh, you know, people from all over the world are uploading and they're interacting and it's, it's, it's really cool. I'm, I, we're st- I'm starting to see a community form and I just need to uh, nurture it uh, as, as best I can. And I'm still discovering, like, the best ways to do that. You're an engineer. You're hacking on something that you love. Is it your full-time job or what's going on here? Right now it is. Uh, I think with... With any startup, it's, uh, you know, money is always a challenge because my costs aren't super high, but I am, I am sustaining myself and uh, I need to, I, I want to keep putting, uh, you know, my heart and soul to sample focus. So uh, turning the right knobs to get the numbers looking, looking in the right direction is, is always encouraging. But, you know, I have to, I have to explore different avenues to, to see if, if sample focus can sustain itself. And if not, then uh, I'll definitely keep working on it, but you know, it might not be my full-time thing. Uh, this is something I've been wanting to cover on this show, is that I know that there are, there is this large contingent of people out there who have a project that they love, and they're hacking on it a lot. It may or may not be turning a profit, and it becomes this thing, because like, the thing about software engineering is it's like, very well-paid industry, but it contains a lot of creative people who don't really want to be, I don't know, working for the man or whatever you want to call it, working for somebody else. And there are all these like intermediary ways of making money where you could do contract work or you could just do a short-term stint at a company. You could work for six months. You could work for eight months and save up money. How do you strategize? You could also just like be extremely parsimonious and only live on rice and beans and live in a <laughs> hovel somewhere. How do you strategize about your day-to-day existence? Oh, man. Wow. That's deep, dude. Uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I feel like actually, I mean, uh, I think anybody that's ever run a business or tried creating a startup can relate that you know most of your time is spent deciding on what you're going to be working on as opposed to actually working. Um, because, you know, there's so many things you could do, but what's going to move the needle at most? I mean, sometimes that's hard to figure out. Um, and as far as balancing, you know, the product decisions and actual work on sample focus in my own life, I think it does come down to, to money sometimes. And it comes down to, to what's worth the most. And I, I have been balancing it with, um, some, some platforms like, um, to earn some extra cash, like Code Mentor has been great, and uh, I have some friends that have been feeding me contracts uh, back in San Francisco. So I, I work occasionally on the side, and um, but it's 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 tough. I think you have to be very dis- self disciplined, and I use something like Trello to keep myself on track and try to make break down every project into the smallest definable task and 
and try to organize myself that way because otherwise I just go insane. What elements of your life do you try to keep stable? Do you have like an exercise routine or do you have uh, a, a place where you're where you're living on a regular basis or are you just like totally nomadic and then your life uh, just varies on day to day? The reason I ask, my, my younger brother, uh, <laughs> I, I love my brother, but yeah, he, he, you know, he's in the last two or three years, like part there have been spans of his life where he's like digital nomad and he's like living off of very little money in like Thailand or whatever. And then he just like, you know, does an Upwork contract for a bunch of money and then he's got more money and he can hack on his side projects. And yeah, exactly. It's this very interesting lifestyle that he has decided to live. And I admire it in a certain sense and it terrifies me in another sense. Oh, I can totally relate. I mean, I just went, got through a big stint of, I guess, being a quote unquote digital nomad. I was, uh, living, I've spent most of the, this year actually in South America, uh, two months in Brazil, a month in Argentina, a month in Peru, and work, working on sample focus and traveling just because, um, well, I was living in San Francisco and the cost just didn't make, not make sense for me while I was working on this. So, um, so yeah, I, I took the plunge and I, and I was able to, I had enough money saved that I was able to live cheaply down there, especially with the, the US dollar being so strong. And uh, it's been interesting, but it. Uh, but I think what grounds me is is just having routine. I think that's the most important, and trying to always work in the mornings. And then if I want to do anything that's more fun, I'll do it in the evening. And an exercise, like you mentioned, is is hugely important to me. So you mentioned two existences that sound very romantic: living in San Francisco and working on your startup, and be, <laughs> being a digital nomad and living off the arbitrage of the US dollar and other other currencies and working on your startup uh in what ways have these romantic notions borne out to be true and which ways have they borne out to be um less true oh man that's great uh yeah i think i definitely romanticized that idea before i did it i mean now i do less um and i think you know like anything um you realize the the pitfalls of of any lifestyle once you're in it and the pitfalls of, of traveling a lot and being this digital nomad is that you just, you end up having to make so many of these decisions that are basically made for you when you have a, a permanent home, right? Like, um, do you have to discover all the places to eat, like to, to, to eat or like what's going on in your neighborhood and then finding the next place you're going to stay. I mean, that can take, it took up a, approximately like six hours every week trying to find out what, like, where am I going to go next? Or, well, where, where am I going to be sleeping? And so these small decisions uh, that revolve around, like, learning your, this new environment or deciding on if it's worth it for you to stay here, it just consumes you. And because you can't, you don't, you take that for granted when you, when you live and work in, you know, in any given place for an extended period of time. The biggest thing I have noticed over the last year and a half is that the human mind is not built to deal with isolation. And as I've been building this podcast, you know, uh, people, you know, people who are listening to the podcast always hear me talking to somebody. But what they don't hear is that most of the time I'm sitting in my apartment by myself, and it's extremely isolating. I think that would be the case even if I were to do this as a digital nomad. Uh, has that been a challenge for you? And how have you overcome 
isolation in these environments where you've got so much variable circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I was most of the traveling I was doing uh, with my girlfriend, she was able to work remotely as well. But I have done some solo traveling stints. Um, like in 2011, I did a six-month solo trip. And, and yeah, isolation was a huge problem, and I did get very lonely. And uh, really, I learned how to come out of my shell by, by staying at hostels and, and, and becoming very good at meeting and befriending new people. And I think it just requires a mindset of, of opening yourself up and, and being okay putting yourself in uncomfortable positions. And being okay feeling uncomfortable, more importantly. Because if you recede because you, know, you feel weird, you're, not gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna feel paralyzed, I think. I mean, that, I'm just speaking personally from my own experiences. So getting back to music, um, I wanna talk a little bit about music production and this world and the intersection between music and technology. When you see music videos, there's always this group of people in a big studio and you've got this panel that has all this instrumentation. There's like <laughs> dials and meters and knobs and stuff. And there's like a pane of glass that's separating the artist in the booth and the all the you know the group of producers that are at their uh, you know uh, eighty thousand dollar studio panel. But then there's just like somebody who's in the corner operating a laptop that's actually doing everything. Right. Do you yeah. know if this does the studio actually get used for anything these days? Oh man. I think it's used for the Instagram shots. I think it's used to, to look cool because I, I, uh, I mean, I've been, you know, on and off producing for, I think 10 years now and I love reading about it and I love like checking out the newest, hottest tools and like more and more people are producing in this so-called like in the box, right? Where that means that they're not using this out, outboard gear. They're not using hardware synths. They're not using it's ha- such hardware a hassle. compressors. Yeah. It's a hassle. It's expensive and it's not, mo- it's not portable. Right. So um, whenever I look at these people in the studios with like the analog plugins and stuff, I just think of the people in those old black and white photos operating vacuum tube computers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's some element to it that's that must, must be real or must add some kind of, of that hidden character that only like the super high fidelity speakers can can even uh, surface. But yeah, I, I've never experienced that or, or used that, so I can't, I can't speak on authority, I suppose. We've been talking about one area of electronic music production that could use a lot of improvement, which is the world of sampling. It is definitely a lot harder than it needs to be today. What are the other areas of electronic music production that you think could be improved? I don't know. I think, you know, when I listen to, I guess, sample focus and and other tools might not be improving this at all, but it's the the number of sounds that sound the same because people, just beca- because more people have access to the tools that make it easy to produce creative work, more people create it and then there's more noise. So um, building tools to allow people to be more original and less copycats would be great. So, so samples certainly would not help with that. But um, what I'm excited to see is tools that let you take something and make it your own. So uh, just because you're using samples from sample focus doesn't mean you have to use it as it is, right? I mean, there's so many great tools that allow you to mangle it or even just, you know, you could download a sample and copy the chord progression from it or something like that. So the idea, the idea here is, is not to 
to get people to make cookie cutter tracks. But the idea with sample focus, and I think with any tool, uh, the music tool, is to get them to be inspired and and get them the tools they need to be creative more quickly and not leave that state of flow. Why don't you think there is more collaboration in music? Because we look at things like open source software and you've got massive teams that are producing hundreds of millions of lines of code together and you get something like Linux. But today, everything that tops the charts is like one to maybe 10 people in the in the most uh, elaborate production circumstances. Why don't we have larger scale collaboration? Honestly, uh, that's that's a really hard question because I don't even know if it's a tech tech problem because I've sat in a room, you know, with other musicians and, and try to collaborate on a track. And it's not it's it's very different than collaborating on, on code because on code what you're trying to solve is usually clear cut. You 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 have a defined problem statement or a defined feature or whatever, right? But with music it, it it's usually not the case that it's def- as defined. And I guess I don't know. I love the concept I love the concept of uh, pair programming where there's like a driver and a navigator. And there's certain things that we can borrow from that to to let to let music collaboration blossom. But honestly, I, I almost think it might be like a pattern issue as opposed to like a tech problem. Because mm. even if you're ha- even if you have tools like like GitHub for Music or something like that where people can pull, I don't think the the roles and the methodologies the finder has been agreed upon. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I think about this problem a lot. I remember reading a few quotes about music composition that have stuck out for me. One was a quote by John Mayer, and he said that the most important tactic for him writing music was that he finished his songs. Even if his songs felt crappy part of the way through, he always liked to barrel through and finish them. And on the contrary, I heard a quote from RJD2 where he stressed the importance of abandoning songs when it feels like they aren't going anywhere. Yeah, it's, yeah I've heard... That's interesting. Yeah, so so pretty much directly orthogonal quotes. And so as far as far as music goes, I have applied both of these things. I've had both of these experiences. You know, sometimes you barrel through a song that feels really unuseful at one point and it gets to be a really good song. Other times it's just ends up going nowhere and you waste three hours on something. My question is, how does this carry over to side projects? Because I, th- I find that there are similar characteristics between how I write music and how I create side projects. Yeah. Do you find that persistence pays off, or is there more merit to switching rapidly between side projects until you find something that really catches your eye? Uh, personally, like I have the problem of that I have, I think, like like hun- like a, at least 100 or more unfinished songs, because... I'll fall into that trap of abandoning things. And usually what gets to me is that uh, the reason I abandon songs is because I'm always kind of uh, context switching between different roles in creating the song. So there, because there's like a sound design aspect, if you're creating electronic music, there's the actual composition. So like the structure of the entire song. So like the intro, the chorus and the breakdown. And then there's, you know, just, just selecting, selecting the, the sonic, the, 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 the tools themselves. And every time, at least for me, when I switch context between uh, picking the tool and then maybe I'll get stuck in sound design, by the time I've done design and sound, I've lost all inspiration for the actual structure of the song. 
And so I think that might have been part of the reason I created Sample Focus was to kind of compartmentalize one aspect of creating music, which is picking the sound and also get just getting the tool so you can get straight started with building the actual structure of the song. Because once you have the song done, even if you don't like, let's say, one layer of it, one song, you can switch that out later. But for me, it's always been a, a, a personal struggle to even finish one aspect of the song, whether it be the structure or the sound design or the, songs, the sound selection. I can relate to that. That's why I think a lot about collaboration, because I think you could break a given song up into these different components like percussion and melody and mastering. And if you could only have a way where people would actually collaborate, but um, right. that's, that's for another show. Well, Daniel, it's been great talking to you. I'm glad to have met you at the launch festival. And I think Sample Focus is awesome. I, I really hope you hit on a model that lets you take off and have a self-sustaining business out of it. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoy this conversation.